Father, we give you the glory for great things you have done in our behalf through your Son, Jesus Christ, and all the blessings we enjoy in this life from your hand. We praise you, Father, for you are the source of all our provision and all our inspiration, and we pray you're with us this morning to receive it afresh from the Word of God. Amen. I've been holding off, holding out on you (laughs) in the gospel tales. The story of the trip to Gadara, um, it's handled by all three synoptists. And there are differences in each, by the way, which I won't focus on this morning. We'll take it from the Gospel of Luke, and uh, I actually preferred Mark. (laughs) But um, I looked back in the annals of my my sermons, and uh, I saw that I had dealt with it before from the Gospel of Luke, and I borrowed, of course, some of the ideas from the series I did many years ago. I think it was 2006, right? 2006. And so we're going to read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8 this morning, verses 22 through 40. Excuse me. 22 through 40. And I want you to think as, we, as I read this, it really reads like a living parable. It's almost so symbolic that it's as if Jesus is living through one of his own parables. Maybe you'll get that feeling as I, as I read it. Um, but I'll develop that as we get into the exposition of it. But verse 22, we'll begin and we'll read down through verse 40. Chapter 8 of Luke, and so Luke writes, Now it happened on a certain day that he got into his boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. Then he sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes. Nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him. And he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. And the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what had happened. 
and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed, and the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away and said, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. And so it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. O Father, open up to us the deep things of God this morning through this your proclaimed and written word. Make them plain and fresh to our hearts this morning, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Story's fairly self-explanatory, <laughs> a little odd. I always wonder what they might have thought when Jesus said to them, let's sail to the other side. If you've ever looked at your map or ever been to Israel, you would know that when you're in Capernaum, on the western side of the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, right? Um, there's only one city on the other side, and that would be Bethsaida, but that's sort of northeast, and Gadara is due east. And I can just imagine them getting in the boat with all these fishermen, right? There's at least four fishermen there. And they get into the boat, and they must have thought, well, we're going to Bethsaida. Strange that he wants to go at night, but we're good. we'll hop on the boat. We'll go to Bethsaida. Not a good time to travel the sea. Um, and again, I, I hope you know this. The Sea of Galilee is a lake, it's like a great lake. It's a very big lake. It's a freshwater lake, all right? Um, and so they, they get in the boat, and I, can't, I can imagine that when they found out they weren't going to Bethsaida, they must have wondered, why are we going where Jews don't go? Now, just for the record, I don't really think God hates pigs. I mean, he, he invented them, right? He has the patent on that. Um, but they do represent filth. I mean, how many proverbs? Uh, Do not cast your pearls before swine, lest they turn and trample you. The dog returns to his own vomit, and the sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. That's what pigs do. And by the way, I've been told, oh no, a pig's a very clean animal. You have not seen pigs if you think that. They don't stay clean long. You know, when I grew up in Brockton on the east side, there's there's a college there called Massasoit. When I was a kid, it was the state piggery. There was 2,000 pigs there. And after Catholic Church on Sunday mornings, my grandfather would take us down in his little falcon and we'd drive on the muddy roads to see the pigs after church. And there were pigs bigger than that car. Okay? Um, We were just far enough away not to have to smell the pigs. But can you imagine these Jews getting in this boat with their Messiah, who they respect and wondering why he would go across the lake and not go to the only Jewish city on the other side. Now, halfway across that lake, or maybe three-quarters of the way, you had to start smelling the pigs. You ever go down Route 24 by the, by the pig farm in the summer? You know what you're near when you're going down the road. So they must have thought, what is the Lord doing? Where is he taking us? So they get in the boat, and the storm comes up. And what does the Lord do? Decides it's a good time to catch up on a nap. Goes to sleep. 
I don't really understand that. But when you're the Lord and you have absolutely nothing to worry about, <laughs> I guess you can do that, you know? So he said, you know, they began to perish. You know the story. The story's very familiar to us. And he gets up. They wake him up. They must have, they must have bantered back and forth. They, do you want to wake up? I'm not waking him up. Are you kidding me? Have him tell me I don't have any faith? You know how that goes. <laughs> no, sir. They probably made John do it because he was the youngest. Like the, my boys used to make Joe do it. You go ask Dad. <laughs> Joe had no fear. The youngest one doesn't. Um, where is your faith, he said to them. And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. There's so many things to talk about. I, I, I hope we get into them when it comes to statements like that. They didn't know this yet, apparently, that he commands the wind and the water. The deity of Christ is something that we all know intellectually, and, and if we don't, we, then we don't know Christ. I mean, that's the most fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. The sects that deny it deny the Christ of the, of the Bible and cannot be called Christian. But, they, but it would be difficult to see in a man who looks like other men, wouldn't it? The demons see it quite readily, which we'll talk about. But what becomes most apparent right from the beginning of today's text is the arena of Christ's authority. There seems to be no end to his authority. The arena gets bigger all the time. Now they've seen him cast demons out, one demon here, one demon there, heal a leper here, heal some blindness over there. But to get up in the midst of a storm and tell it to quiet because it's inconveniencing me is a new revelation to the disciples. Who can this be, they say. So we can see at the outset of the story that all of creation must obey the words of Christ. The winds must cease to blow at his command and the waves must relent from tossing. In Mark's rendition, he says, peace be still. He just commands the forces of nature and they stop. And by the way, I don't, like to think of it this way any more than you do, but when the terrible winds are blowing, it's because he commanded them to blow. And I know that makes us quaint and superstitious in this day of science where everybody's so much smarter than us, but um, they'll get their education at some point. Believe me in that. The wind ceased to blow at his command, the waves relent from tossing, and we see what the disciples saw that Jesus is God over creation and the forces of nature. Now, Jesus could have just lied down. He stood up. If you go to Matthew, Matthew or, or, or Mark, see, he stands up and he commands away. But he could have just like sort of rolled over on his, on his pillow there in the stern and went, quiet down. And, and it wouldn't matter if he yelled it or if he whispered it or whatever he did. He could have thought it in his sleep and it would have had to happen. So the Lord displays his deity on the way to Gadara. And he displays his deity having arrived in that place as well. And so the second area of authority is seen He's Lord over the unclean spirits, all of them. And it doesn't matter how many there are. It's not an even contest. It's not a fair fight. Jesus against, I guess we're going to call them 2,000. Mark gives a number, 2,000 pigs. Here it said many swine, right? Um, um, but 2, 000, So there's at least 2,000 demons in this guy. Think of the spiritual potential of a being made in the image of God. Think of the kind of spiritual invasion 20 spirits are, right? But the Holy Spirit 
comes into us. And there is no demon that attacks a person who is so filled. Do you understand me? So when the demoniac saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. I imagine him talking like Gollum or something. Schmeagle hates nasty chips. I've always been amazed from Scripture that demons have immediate recognition of Christ. Did that ever amaze you? Remember Paul with the sons of Siva? The sons of Siva, the seven sons, are trying to cast out the demon, and the demon comes out of the man and jumps on the people and, like, thrashes them about. And you remember what the demon said to the sons of Siva? They said, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but you I don't know. <laughs> In other words, they had the authority of God to stand against demonic spirits. Some did, some did. Some just thought they, they'd copy what Paul did, and that would be enough. Um, So I've always been amazed that they have immediate recognition of Christ. We see from another place, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Imagine these demons groveling, these wicked beings groveling before the Lord. Don't give me what I deserve. In another place, we see this same thing from Mark. We read an unclean the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, you are the Son of God. Remember what a revelation that was to them, to hear that? That's not even something, a concept they were ready to understand. God has a son. But the demons knew. James knew. James wrote about it. So, and then it says, Jesus sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Now, why do you suppose that is? Remember when Paul came into Philippi, it was the demon-possessed fortune-teller girl, and she kept saying things about Jesus, the Most High God? You would think it was almost like she was preaching the gospel for him. But guess what? The, The Lord does not want to be proclaimed by demons. They've had their chance. They're not redeemed by the blood of Christ, by the way. There's no second chance for the demon. So he tells them to shut up. You know, the church are the only ones blessed with the authority to preach the word of God. And by God, we better do it. I have another theory. A lot of theories. But the demon doesn't have faith in Christ. God wants to be known by faith. Now, the demon knows Jesus by sight. Did you notice that? When they saw him. It says, when they saw him coming, they fell down before him. They know him by sight. They, in other words, friends, they've seen him before. They're familiar with him. And they cower in his presence. Are you as amazed as I am that unclean spirits see deity when we can't see it? They see it. They have access to God in ways that we don't yet experience. They see the Christ of the transfiguration, the ones that Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain in Caesarea Philippi. They saw the Christ in his glory. They see him in his glory. We saw him in his, in his or rather, they saw him in his sandals and his worn-out garment and his long, wind-blown, unruly hair and his long beard, like any other Hebrew man of the time. But they look in and saw the glory of the Creator God. They see deity, friends, where we see only humanity. And so Christ is determined to become first known by his works and his words, and only secondly by his inner glory. 
Remember what he said to John the Baptist when he sent the disciples out? We've read it many times. They said, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus said, go tell John the things you hear and see. I even find that interesting. You always say see and hear. Nobody says hear and see. Right? Don't you say see and hear? It's sort of an order of speech, the way we do it in the Western world. He says hear and see. Faith cometh by hearing. The works cometh by seeing, but faith is by hearing. Go tell John the things you hear. In other words, I'm about to give you something to hear that reveals who I am. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who's not offended because of me, he said. Now, I've always said that the God, or rather that God chose the church to preach Christ. We know this, right? We have a great commission. It doesn't extend to the demonic world. He does not want to be preached by that faction. He could have had evangelism done by angels, you know, the ones that didn't fall, right? It would have been probably pretty effective, but in some reason, in God's purpose, that's not how he did it. For reasons of his own, he didn't do it. It's for the church to make him known, not angels and certainly not demons. The facts or that fact rather warrants a discussion of the various characteristics of the created order. There are animals in the created order. There are people. There are angels, good and bad. And on this scale, as incredible as it may seem, people have the image of God impressed upon their being. Animals are low on the scales. Angels are high. But only man comes close to the image of deity. It doesn't say that angels are impressed with the image of God, whatever that actually means, but man is. The image of God is impressed on man and remains there even though he fell in sin. There's something in man that God wants to retrieve and regenerate, and it's not in any other being of the created order. Man is special with his imago Dei, his image of God. And God made us that way. But I suggest to you what they saw was his perfect humanity. The very thing he'll one day, or we will one day, possess ourselves. Paul gives us a glimpse into this reality. Remember he wrote to the Corinthians, Do you not know that we shall judge the world? And then he says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? It's an odd statement. But in that time, God will put the church above the whole created order. And so the faithful have this hope. John writes about it. His first epistle, he said, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It seems to me that when we no longer need faith, because faith takes us to heaven, but then we live by sight, right? The presence of God. It's It's no longer something that we just believe. It's something we see. When we see him, somehow we're transformed. For we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him for, or we could say because, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we should be in this process of sanctification, getting ready for that instantaneous change that happens when we see the Lord. That we celebrate at every funeral, just as we celebrated yesterday at Dottie's funeral. And the pastor was very poignant, to point out that it was indeed a celebration, it was a a graduation. And friends, if it's not, we ought to pack it up and go home and turn this into an Elks Club. Take the cross down, put up some antlers, and call it a day. But no, it is true. 
The Lord did come. The Lord did make promises. The Lord did regenerate his own. The Lord did insert faith into people to see what was unseeable. It's unseeable, but it's not unknowable. And so the faithful have this hope that the angelic world has no access to. Angels fell through disobedience, and there's no redemption for them. The blood of Christ doesn't cover them. It can't be applied to them. Only the children of humans have access to redemption. What an awesome promise. What an awesome promise. And so we become like him, and so we become joint heirs with him. But we have to add this one caveat so that we don't take this too far. And this is an area where so many of our charismatic brothers and sisters have gone astray, friends. We do not become gods. We inherit the glorious humanity of our perfect human Savior. He has perfect humanity. He has perfect deity. He bestows on us perfect humanity. And he remains the sole possessor of deity. Now, all of Mormonism is built on the fact that we graduate and become gods. And there are other sects that do the same. And it has infiltrated the evangelical churches as well. But I warn you about it. It's, it's a doctrine that we should call, and I believe is called, the uniqueness of Christ. We're like him, but he still remains unique and special before God. He's the only begotten son. And he will always be the only begotten son. We are the adopted sons and daughters of God. Right? Verse 32, the second half of verse 32 So the demons begged him that he would permit them to enter the swine. Imagine that. (laughs) They begged him, can we go into those pigs? I can just imagine it. The demon, you know, the demon Gollum saying, Lord, you have no love of swine. Let us go into the pigs. Isn't it interesting? The spirit world needs the permission of Christ to do what they do. And they seek it. Remember this passage? And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, but do not touch his person. Of course, Satan comes and pleads for more power, and he gives him more and more power over Job, but Job's faith sustains him. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. James wrote this, as I alluded to earlier, He says to the saints, you believe in one God, you do well. Even the demons believe. So it's notable that the legion recognizes their God as God. They don't say to Jesus, oh, we don't take orders from you. They're too fearful. He'll send them to the abyss. And what that actually means, I don't know. Maybe it's annihilation. You know, we don't believe in the annihilation of the soul. We believe the soul continues. But I don't know that that extends to demons. But they do fear the abyss. If we go to the book of Revelation, we find that that's the second death, and certain souls go with them into the abyss. It's also remarkable that the demons know that they will be punished, and that the Christ that has just walked up to them out of nowhere, they were safe in Gadara. Jews don't go there. Nobody goes there, right? No Arab even goes there. They don't like pigs either, right? They were safe there. But isn't it interesting that they know that Jesus is the punisher, come to punish them? He came there for a reason, to cleanse this filthy, immoral, wayward society. Now, pig farming isn't in and of itself sinful, but it was against the law of God in that day. And that's why I say it's like a parable. It represents rebellion against God. It represents filth, and the Lord represents 
immaculate cleanliness. So they see him, and they know they will be punished. They won't get away scot-free. And so with that understanding, they plead for a lesser punishment than is warranted, and so they beg the Savior to permit them to enter the swine. It's apparent from the text that human possession is preferable to a demon than swine possession, but to enter the abyss, the final place of judgment, is worst of all. They'd rather stay in the man. But if need be, they'll take the lesser sentence of the swine. If you would just let me have that little bit of probation, Lord, I'll go into, we'll go into the swine. In, in Mark's rendition, he just says, go. <laughs> Boom, they're gone. Verse 31, and they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. So they plead for the lesser sentence as a temporary measure. And why is that? Because pure evil, friends, does not repent. They're not repent. They didn't even try to make a deal. Look, we'll try to do better. We'll try to be less disobedient, Lord. There's no deal-making going on. They know their place. It's written in Scripture. They know the Scripture better than you do. They know their uh, time is coming, and this could be that time, and they're pleading for a little more time. Just let us go into the swine. So demons don't repent, but they do grovel. They do grovel for mercy to continue on some level, Right? The swine are preferable to the abyss, but let this be a warning to every person intent on continuing in an evil lifestyle. Be careful what you ask the Savior. You might get it. And so the Savior, in a show of mercy, grants their request, or so they thought. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. Now, does that mean the demons were extinguished? I don't know. But I know they're not happy demons. And so the doctrine reveals, the incident rather, reveals the blessed doctrine of deviled ham. That's an old joke. I couldn't resist it. A lot of preachers have made that joke, but I figured you should know that. The first instance of deviled ham in history. All right. By the way, a Christian should not be eating deviled ham. Or a devil's food cake. Is there a devil's food cake too? Yeah, don't eat that. There's angel cake. You can have all of that that you want. You'll float. (laughs) My mother used to make angel cake all the time, the big hole down the middle. You've had that thing? (laughs) So they asked for a lighter sentence. They were granted it, and so the Lord shows himself a clever bargainer, doesn't he? Just like an Arab, right? Oh, that's 3,000 rupees. I'll give you 10. I'll take 12. I mean, you know, it's like they just love that over there, you know? Um, In the final analysis, though, he shows himself uncompromising in punishing evil, right? Surely the death of the host is the end of the demon. And though they plead to be spared the abyss, the abyss is what they received, whatever that means for the demon. But can you imagine the carnage? I mean, it's not a novel, so we don't have embellishments. By the way, my novel is out. It's in the other room, and I do embellish. (laughs) That's why you write a novel. But... um, they plead for this thing, and they don't receive it. But the, the swineherds, right, the thousands of swineherds, they went out and told everyone in the country and in the cities, and they all came around, and they had to look over that cliff and see 2,000 broken, bloodied pig carcasses in the, in the uh, Sea of Galilee on the rock. So it's, it must be a steep cliff, and they go down. It's like the lemmings. You ever hear of the lemmings? They just keep running. If one runs over the cliff, they all do it. You know? Sound like Democrats. 
but um, they plead to be spared, and they are, but the pigs just run over the abyss. Um, that had to just be an awesome, bloody sight. You know, the Lord is not a dainty guy. <laughs> he doesn't do half measures. That was, had to be an awesome thing. Now, you've got to remember what that means to them monetarily. That is their industry. That's their lifestyle. Jews had sheep. The Gadarenes had pigs. Verse 34, when those who fed the swine saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Now, to be clear, what these men saw was not the raw power of deity or of good over evil. What they saw was destruction of property. The demons saw the good and evil part of it. But the swineherds didn't see that. They just saw that their industry was destroyed. These men had lived in opposition to God's law for so long they were insulated from any real revelation of deity in their midst. And I want to force home that point in a, in, um, to make a contemporary application as I get toward the end of this. But these people were like the Pharisees who heard that Jesus healed a demoniac and they concluded this fellow doesn't cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Remember Beelzebub? Translated means Lord of the Flies, right? Lord of Flies. Verse 37, Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Friends, if you ask Jesus to leave long enough, he's kind of a gentleman sometimes. He may just do it. You ask him to leave, he may just leave. Now I want to give you a little hint here. You remember the woman at the well, right? She had false doctrine. But she was looking for the Messiah. These aren't. When they heard the word of God through this woman, they invited Jesus to stay. I want to make that comparison as we get through this. There's a little tease. So again, we have a warning. Be careful what you ask of God. Don't tell him to leave. He might do it. You might get it. These depraved souls had the Savior in their midst, and all they could see was the financial loss, ruin of property, the pollution of their side of the lake, they don't talk about that. The conservations were probably all out there. The conservationists, pause was probably out there. Um, I grant you their loss in monetary value was great, but they had lost something far more precious long ago. Friends, when you get so far in moral depravity, it costs greatly to come back. That's how sin is. You know, Karen and I were cutting the for Scythia bushes behind my woodshed the other day. I have to make room there for the, for the two propane tanks that I told you about. The generators there, it needs the propane tanks. And we had only done that once before. Now, these things grow. They'll, go, they'll grow right back next year, but they're gigantic, bushy things in the way. But as we looked in there, there was all of this um, bittersweet. If you live around here, you know what bittersweet is, right? It, it grows up with a little shoot out of the ground, and it sticks up as far as it can, and if it can grab anything onto the tree, it wraps around it. I almost want to put a camera. It happens so fast. You ever see those nature shows where it shows the plant growing real fast? That's what's happening there. And then this time of year, they have all these pretty little, even though it's a horrible, wicked thing, clematis or um, what's it called? Bittersweet. Um, it has these beautiful little berries that are, that are um, yellow and they break open, and they're orange, and they're beautiful, and they make wonderful fall decorations, so Karen's cutting them down. Suddenly, I have a craft. To do. I'm trying to hack this stuff down. Now I'm doing crafts. But um, she remembered something that 
John's brother Mike said years ago, he said, the bittersweet is like sin. It starts skinny. I have seen bittersweet on trees this big, like a tree itself. Have you seen the cords winding together? You've got to cut that. It'll kill the tree. It's, it, it'll bring the tree right down eventually. It takes a long time. But it, it gets so entangled in, and you, you, we were looking like, where's the start of it? We couldn't even distinguish the start of it. That's how sin is. It gets so entangled around every aspect of your being. You, you can't cut it off at the root. But when you do, you're going to hurt the, the tree. But I didn't care because I'm hacking the tree, right? Leave the tares in because if you pull them out now, you'll, you'll tear the wheat with it. It's kind of like that. And Mike used to say it's sin. And boy, was he onto something. What a great image. So they ask him to depart. And why wouldn't they? They can't see their depravity. Just like you can't see the origins of the sin that's entangled itself around you. And so it seems to me, because Jesus leaves, they ask him to leave and he leaves. It seems to me the rest of the story is about raw evangelism. Talk about election. How do you miss that? There was nothing over there except one person totally possessed by thousands of demons, and Jesus went in freedom and said, you can't come with us, you have to stay here and preach the gospel to these unruly people that you're with. Talk about election. Talk about um, being favored of God. I mean, what a job he had. At least the Samaritan woman went out, and she already said Messiah is coming. They were looking for the Messiah. The Gadarenes weren't. They had their chance, and they told him to leave. But the rest of the passage is about evangelism of the most difficult sort that I can imagine. And evangelism may be defined here as commissioning one soul or one voice to bear with the sins of a whole society. We're not apprised that there's anyone else there who's ready to listen to this. They had Jesus there. They had the demon preaching the gospel and recognizing Christ. And they kicked them all out. And so they leave them here hoping that one person or some or many in some miraculous way would come to Christ. In verses 38-39 say, Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged Jesus that he might be with him. It's funny, the, the demons begged him, and he said, okay, <clears throat> to their hurt. This man begged him, and he said no to his benefit. It's always the safest place to be in the will of God. And Jesus said to him, return now to your own house. And he didn't mean the tomb, <laughs> meant the other house. Tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now, no one could have known what that man went through except that man. How do you be possessed of a legion of demons and communicate that? I almost wish Luke did a little more research and told us, what, that was, what did that guy have to say? What was his gospel like? Um, the whole passage may be said to be for our edification in realizing that one storm, friends, is simply the preparation for the next storm. You know, when they came through that storm, when they thought they were going to perish and the Lord slept in the boat and they were in despair, when they hit land, they must have thought, Phew, only to find this place? And each storm of life comes with a divine purpose. Remember that as well. Um, and we don't always know what it is, certainly not right away. And note that if that purpose, the purpose of Christ in crossing the lake was to free the demoniac or to show his power over the devil, we may yet recognize that the outcome hardly paid off in terms of evangelism. They reaped one man or of building a kingdom. The whole kingdom asked them to leave. 
There was but one man who was thankful, and the rest begged the Savior to depart. It seems to me this is the greatest test for the Christian in our day. This is perhaps the greatest test for the church of our generation. Though we may cross oceans, brave tempests confront the devil on his own turf, we may yet find the only reward for all our trouble is we simply obeyed the Lord. Do you know there were missionaries centuries ago who went to different places, went to Buddhist lands, and not only saw no converts, but saw many of their compatriots convert to Buddhism? You're not always successful when you follow the Lord. It seems to me, but you know, the Lord wants to be proclaimed first and foremost. So when you come and stand before the judge, you know who he is because someone told you, but you told him to depart. So this is a great test, if not the greatest test for the church in our generation. Our purpose may be to discover if we will still rejoice in the command of our Savior, even though those who we have spent our lives preaching to remain more comfortable with their demons than they are with the Lord that we preached. And at this stage, we have to say that's how they are in Gadara. I can hardly count the times, friends. You ever have someone tell you, oh, you said I respect your... uh, you was a brother. And if you ever see me getting wayward, let me know. That's a, that's a mixed bag of, of things. I can hardly count the times that my counsel, offered in love and grounded in Scripture to a fellow believer, has been summarily rejected as being too hard. I can hardly recall all the times that good counsel was branded unloving because it required a sacrifice of something dear. I've always believed that conformity... To Christ would require cultural changes that may be seen as radical changes, but only by degree. And this is where I begin to make my application about the nations today. The more a society strays from Judeo-Christian understanding, the more radical the walk of a true son of God will seem to them. You know, they think this evangelical pastor, Pulowski, in Canada is radical. Friends, he's not radical. He's mainline. You know, they one of the reasons they don't like him is because he's against abortion and homosexuality, and he's for Israel. I mean, those are not radical views, or are they? Have we come to the place where the simple things we believe are very radical to our nation? Friends, none of these things change. Our message doesn't change. The more society strays from Christ, the more radical the walk of a true son of God will seem to them. I can only guess as many of us will see the downward moral spiral of our country, that the closer we come to Christ, the farther we will go from social acceptability. Friends, even fellow Christians aren't accepting some of these pastors. You know, we we, we got into this thing, my whole evangelical life. Evangelicals were nice. We were lily white. We never said anything hard or abrasive. And now that's all we are. And we've got our fellow Christians saying, "Don't, don't say that. It seems too radical, even to us. But I must say, I'm heartened to see that some in America are awakening to the social miasma that they've been blinded to for so long. You know what miasma is? It's like a pervasive disease in the soil. (laughs) It's sort of a social miasma, this social disease that's coming up that says, we're good, you're bad. However, even though people are standing, and I've said, we're going to have some strange bedfellows in the in, in this fight, because you're going to see some liberals and some um, immoral people who still understand that freedom is freedom and fight want to fight for it, and you know what I mean? Uh, I'm not sure how that kind of thing will be navigated, 
But the revolution on the horizon may not be so well-grounded as it seems. For the sake of the church and her blessed liberties, I'm glad to see other groups standing against tyranny. But there's a flaw in the movement. Social reform is best when it emerges out of spiritual rebirth, the way the country began, right? Revival is when many souls are reborn at the same time, right? Social upheaval is not the same as spiritual revival. The former demoniac of Gadara was not left there to teach that society how to transition from one industry to the other. It's not what he was left there to do. He was not left there to show them how to innovate, to cut their losses, to invest in other resources now that pig farming had fallen on hard times and hard rocks. He wasn't a social advisor. He wasn't a financial advisor. You know, he wasn't like the... uh, the, the guidance counsel, you come in and say, well, you know, I lost my pig farm. Is there anything else you can suggest that I do? That's not his job. His job is to proclaim the great things God has done for him. He was left there to tell them what great things the Lord could do in them. Freedom and prosperity are the outgrowth of truth and godly devotion. The one cannot last long without the other. And we go on blinded thinking that it can Consider the Hebrew, the Hebrew hatred of pigs and the people who tend them. Remember that rock bottom for the prodigal son was to tend pigs and eat what they ate. Remember that? And he ate what the pigs ate. You know, for Jesus to tell, that was harsh to their ears, I got to tell you. He, he not only tended pigs, but he ate their food. Can you picture him with the head in the trough with the swine? That's how I always see it. Recognize that Jesus didn't travel to Gadara alone, but he took the infant church with him to teach them what it costs to love an enemy. Jesus did not share the Gadarenes' love of pigs, but we must not miss the love he had for the Gadarenes themselves. This is where the battle gets really thorny, doesn't it? The people you're opposed, you're supposed to still preach the mighty works of God to. The disciples saw the Lord rid the country of the source of evil. The pigs were only the symbol of moral depravity, friends. The presence of legion was the substance of it. That was the real evil. The Gadarenes saw the Lord rid the country of the source of prosperity. But unfortunately, that prosperity had to go with the source of evil because the clematis wound in and you couldn't separate the sin from the social anymore. Thank you, Mike, for that illusion. (laughs) The Gadarenes saw the power of Christ and feared. They could only see his authority and remain blinded to his love. That's how it is sometimes. You know, when we're told... We stand up and say, like Pastor Palowski has reputedly said, I didn't hear him say it, but I read that he stands against homosexuality as sin. Well, friends, that's the loving thing to do. That's not unloving. That's the loving thing. But when you're so far away from uh, righteousness before God, you don't see it that way anymore. The thing you like to hear, the easy thing is the loving thing, right? And love has been replaced by tolerance and it means tolerance of just about anything except truth so they only saw his presence among them they saw only his presence among them would require changes in them and yet they clung to their fear and their bondage and their love of swine and they caused the lord to heed their pleas to depart rather than have him cast one more pearl before swine He left them one convert. He left them one recipient of grace to witness of the love of Christ. He would be their only monument to the sovereignty of God there, other than 2,000 pig carcasses lying in the the deep. Um, 
He would be their only testimonial that the Lord would cross oceans through storms to save them if only they would choose to elevate themselves above the herds of the swine that fed them. Isn't that interesting? They feed the swine and the swine feed them. Yet for the moment, they would determine to be fed by bread alone and to curse every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. And whole societies are doing that. Now, I talk about the parable. I talk about the allegorical aspects of it. There was a second century theologian named Origen. Some people say Origen, they say it wrong. (laughs) Um, uh, Ancient languages tend to favor the short vowel sounds, just as a general rule. But Origen believed that every scripture had three categories of meaning. There was the obvious literal category, right? This is the vehicle upon which the deeper meaning of the verse was carried. You got the facts of the story. That's the literal, right? And secondly, there was a moral sense of a verse, which was there to present a moral lesson to edify the soul. But thirdly, there was a sort of esoteric secret meaning, and that was the allegorical or hidden meaning important to the Christian faith. Origen saw himself as gifted to wrote out that third level of meaning. And I just want you to know, I don't subscribe to that belief. Because men come up with some pretty crazy things to say that this is what this means. You follow what I'm saying? But this story lends itself to the allegorical. So I don't hold our origins teaching in this regard because too many preachers have abused it. But some passages do seem to bring an allegorical element to them. And insofar as the land of Gadara is concerned, it seems to me the allegorical makes itself evident. Our passage is multi-tiered. It begins with trial. Friends, trials are those events in life that test the authenticity of faith. And all they really do, friends, is prepare us for the next trial. So it seems. Surviving storms and demons, hence the name. Trials let us see our vulnerabilities and the vulnerabilities of one another. Trials are those times, those circumstances of life that cause us to fear for a moment that the Lord sleeps through our miseries. Don't you ever feel that way? There's an allegory, the Lord sleeping through their miseries. Don't you ever feel that way? The Puritans had a name. They called it desertions. It was those times, and that was a real category of life for them. Oh, I'm in a time of desertion. The Lord has left me to myself. And they really felt this way. And I think there are those times. But here's how you get through those times. It's really so simple. We shouldn't miss it. We have the sense that the Lord's sleeping through our misery. Our human Lord did sleep. He needed sleep. Not as much as other men, but he needed sleep. Um, Just when we're saddened and discouraged by his response to our trouble, our faith may hearten us to the reality that our slumbering Messiah is still in the boat. The boat can't go down if the Lord's in the boat. So remember that in your desertion. To coin a phrase, we're all in the same boat, and the Lord's in it with us. And he said, I'll never leave you, forsake you. I'll never leave you or forsake you, not even to the ends of the earth. So he's there. He might be sleeping in the boat. I always try to wake him. I'm, I, I don't like being in the storm too long. I'm like, come on, Lord. You got to see what I'm going through here. But how could the boat sink if the Savior's in it? So when his power doesn't calm us, his presence has to be enough. He's still there. And then we land. And where are we? In a graveyard and some nut is living in the tombs. And just when we should be able to take our rest, we find that our faith has led us to a place where the evil is so palpable, we can smell it on our approach. You know, it just brings to mind, 
and I have said this recently, and I'm sorry to have to say this. I really am. I've been to a lot of cities in the last few years. Cities stink of urine and other things. Paris, London, Dunkirk, Seattle, right? New York. Some of the cities. It's, I said this the other day. The, the girl, Karen's girl, was cutting, cutting my hair a couple weeks ago. She goes, I know. I feel that same way about cities. Because, see, I try all these sermons out. But people, before I come here, you know, the dentist already knows what you're getting. But um, so she said, I know. She goes, even when I go to Boston, I don't even think Boston's in the same category as some of these others. I haven't been, in a while. I haven't been up to Boston in a while. But she said, when I come home, I take a shower. <laughs> she gets it. She gets the illusion. So we can sort of smell the evil on our approach. I remember walking up to the Eiffel Tower with Karen, and, and I'll tell you, Paris, from my experience, was much cleaner than London and some of the others. But we walked up, and this is a heavy traffic tourist area. And whenever I saw it, it was beautiful weather, but it might have rained recently because it was little puddles, and I'm like, I don't know where that puddle is. I don't think I'd step in that puddle. I think I'd go well around that little puddle. But we set foot on land, and the first person to greet us is so depraved He's more comfortable among the dead than among the living. And the moral depravity of a society has no cure for him. He's a product of that society, but even they found him to be intolerable. And he them. I know what they need in Gadara. Democracy. No, no, no. They need more money for education. That's what they need. They need a Magna Carta, maybe a Constitution or a Mayflower Compact. That will be, see what I mean? They're not even amenable to these things. You have to have calmness of mind, soundness of mind and thought to order society again. This is a disordered place. When man has descended too far into the abyss of his moral and national depravity, there is but one way out, and that is the gospel, and a lot of stuff has to get left behind. That's the... That's what we're in. That's the situation we're seeing. The Lord took the worst among them and released him from his spiritual bondage, yet he denied the man's plea to take him from that place. He revived, he received life and a calling in the same moment. It's quite a big deal. I have my theories as to why that man was qualified to preach the gospel to them, but I won't share another theory this morning. Friends, the Great Commission gives us two paths to follow. One is to disciple the soul of individual people. The other is to disciple the nations. There are so many examples in Scripture where whole nations received the word of God and repented and were spared in one fell swoop. And I'll give you a couple of them right now. Egypt under Joseph. Joseph was the high priest of Egypt. I don't know if you ever realized that, but he married the high priest's daughter, that the priest of On, I think he was called, he became high priest. I don't know if you realize that connection. He was the spiritual leader of the country back in the days when they let the Jews come to Goshen, you know, until another pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph when you get to Exodus 400 years later. Disciple nations, that's what he did. So there was Egypt under Joseph. There was Nineveh under Jonah. Jonah was as unlikely a reformer as this guy was, right? I mean, he was reluctant, but he was obedient in the final analysis. Talk about election. Talk about irresistible grace. The guy ran away and couldn't get away. A fish ate him. I mean, that's not election? <laughs> no, it's just, just happy accident. The fish ate him and he repented. Um, so the Lord took the worst among them and released him for his spiritual bondage. 
Um, so you have the example of Egypt under Joseph, of Nineveh under Jonah. How about Samaria with the woman at the well? We're talking one person preaching now to a whole nation. One person preaching. And all three of these are successful stories. And we hear the end of it. You notice we don't hear the end of Gadara? Do a little research. Uh, I'm not going to get into it today. Gadara didn't really come around. Um, but Samaria with the woman at the well. These are examples where many believed and so their whole societies reformed themselves and became examples to the world. And it happened fast. Now I ask you to consider as we pray for national political reform, i.e. revival, to help me decipher which example most clearly represents our societal condition of the moment. I'm not ready to conclude that we're Gadara. I hope we're just Samaria. What do you think? In Samaria, though their doctrine was false, they were in search of Messiah, and when they found him, invited him to stay, and knew him by his message. They didn't hate his message. In Gadara, there was no one searching, and they collectively invited him to leave. Is that where we are? Is that where Canada is? I look at Canada and the U.S., and I wonder which example fits best. I could suggest to you at the top of my head, it seems to me, if one is Gadara and the other Samaria, that Canada is Gadara. And maybe the examples don't fit perfectly or can't be applied, but something to think about. These are whole nations left to an evangelist to fix. He didn't put a king in power. He put a former demoniac in power. In Samaria, though their doctrine was false, remember, you Jews say you should worship on this mountain. We say you should worship at Mount Gerizim. Remember the whole thing? It doesn't matter what mountain you worship on, lady. It matters if you worship in truth. So they were searching for Messiah. They were searching for truth, and they recognized it in him when he came. In Gadara, there was no one searching, and they collectively invited him to leave. I wonder if they're trying to expunge the church from some of these nations today. I fear that's how it looks. They, you take one man, and you break him down like that. It makes it hard to back him up. There's much to lose, so it would seem, right? I challenge you to engage in this exercise with me. Samaria came quickly after hearing the woman's message, and I can tell you from history that no such revival came quickly to Gadara. And we see so many places in the history of Scripture where God had had enough. He didn't reform Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar and Zeboim, if you remember. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the deep truths of your word. Father, I pray we see the signs of the times. It is time for the church to care about such things. And deeply, Lord, there's much to lose. We are here for this reason, Father, to disciple the nations. And we pray, Father, if you remain far from us, we have no such hope of seeing it. But if it is your will, Father, and you empower us by your Spirit, we will see revival in the land. And the land will be healed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.